rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next, a closer look at Samuel Beckett. In addition to providing expert commentaries to our Beckett season, Jerry Dukes has been remembering his own meetings with the writer on numerous occasions in the 1980s. It all began with the world premiere at the Gate Theatre in 1985 of I'll Go On, Jerry's stage adaptation with Barry McGovern of Beckett's post-war trilogy of novels. I shall not watch myself die. That would spoil everything. Have I watched myself live? Barry invited me to participate in making a script for I'll Go On. Some months beforehand, we had decided that the so-called post-war trilogy of novels, Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unnameable, would be the source for the script. Have I ever complained? Then why rejoice now? Now, obviously, there's some 400 pages in this. The template we had been given by Michael Colgan, who was producing, was a little bit constraining. I am content, necessarily but not to the point of clapping my hands. So the first act would be 50 minutes and the second act would be 40 minutes. So as I've written somewhere else, uh, there we were with the ocean of Beckett's incomparable prose before us and two thimbles in our hands. I was always content, knowing I would be repaid. While waiting, I shall tell myself stories, if I can. The way to read Beckett is to read Beckett. But of course, this was not reading. This was listening to Beckett in the theatre. And you couldn't have anybody doing 400 pages. But it worked. It worked very well. I'll go on as travel the world. I look forward to their giving me great satisfaction. Some satisfaction. I am satisfied. There, I have enough. I am repaid. I need nothing more. Barry and I got together in June 1985 and then eventually we we finalised the script. I hadn't found a way to begin it. Let me say before I go any further that I forgive nobody. I was going on holidays to the south of France and then I contrived to get a flat in Paris for a couple of weeks on the way back and wrote to Beckett in the hope that he would meet me and I could consult with them, but that didn't work out. From Paris, I came up with what I thought would be a reasonable contribution to the script, and I amassed an enormous amount of coins and went to a public phone box near the square Robiac, home address of James Joyce at one point, and called the late Colm O'Brien, the director, gave him the page and line references from from The Unnameable and did the same then with more coins to Barry McGovern. So uh, the actor and the director were both aware of my recommendation and it was adopted. I'm pleased, pleased about that. But that was the last input I had into the script. I didn't attend a rehearsal. I didn't meet with anybody. I was present for the opening night and I was utterly gobsmacked. What Colm O'Brien did was sensational. Barry's performance, of course, was numpari. Bobby Ballas' set was absolutely a neutral space. And the lighting by the late Rupert Murray was enchanting. 
I was gobsmacked. Well, well, so there's an audience. It's a public show. You buy your seat and you wait. Perhaps it's free, a free show. You take your seat and you wait for it to begin. Or perhaps it's compulsory, a compulsory show. You wait for the compulsory show to begin. Michael Corgan has said, but what do you want for your contribution to, to the script of I Go On? And I said, well, I'd like a return ticket to Paris and a meeting with Samuel Beckett. Michael said, OK, so that was fine. In April the following year, 1986, uh, was Beckett's 80th birthday. And I'll Go On played to, for two nights in Paris on the Boulevard Raspail in the Alliance Francaise Theatre. Barry played it. The audience was very receptive. Just before the first performance, the Gate Theatre group of which I was a part, and so was my wife, because we were both there together, we were approached by Michael Farrell, the uh, Irish artist, to say that uh, he had met Beckett earlier in the day and Beckett sent us his best compliments, but he wouldn't be there. But we had already learned that uh, his Dublin informants had told him that I'll go on was the full shilling. After the second performance, Michael Colgan said that I was to be outside my hotel at 10 o'clock on the following Sunday. That's all he said. So I, I knew immediately what was happening. I was going to meet Beckett. So a taxi arrived with Michael Colgan, Barry McGovern, the late Rupert Murray, and space for me. And we went off and we arrived at the PLM the hotel on the Boulevard Saint-Jacques, about 75 metres from where Beckett was living. Exactly at 11 o'clock, Beckett appeared in the Petit Café. Now, I knew I was going to be overwhelmed because I'd been reading this man since sometime in the 60s. I'd been working with this text for some months beforehand. Even tried to read him in French, which was a good idea too. He arrived, and I'd had the presence of mind. The tables in the PLM were quite small, and there was going to be five people sitting at the table. So I contrived to have my chair directly opposite where the vacant one was, so that I could feast my eyes. So at some point during the course of the meeting, there was talk about, you know, touring theatre, and Beckett launched in on a description of the vicissitudes of touring theatre with um, Billy Whitelaw. She had done a tour of Australian venues with Rockabye and Footfalls, two late plays, two very quiet plays, and she had been playing Rockabye in a theatre, I think in Melbourne, but it may have been Sydney, but a, a theatre, and in the ancillary small studio theatre. And on the main stage, upstairs, so to speak, there was a Vietnam War drama with you know, helicopter gunships and machine guns and a raucous soundtrack by Bruce Springsteen. And she was playing this voiceover play, her voice, and she's on stage rocking in a rocking chair, rockabye it's called, and it's utterly quiet and it's utterly sotto voce and all this noise was going on. So Beckett said apparently the theatre was not sufficiently impermeable to sound. There are his exact words. 
And whatever look came across my face, he looked at me very, very directly. And he said, you've been looking at me very intently all this time. You haven't said much. What are you doing? I said, well, Mr. Beckett, I'm listening attentively because I want to establish whether your long immersion in Francophone culture since 1936-37 has inflected upon your use of the English language. Which was a bit cheeky of me. And he said, and do you think it has? And I said, well, to be quite honest, the way you've just used the word impermeable strikes me as very Frenchified. He said, oh, and why do you say? I said, well, you know, I would have said the place wasn't sufficiently soundproof. He said, oh, the word impermeable was all right for the master. And if it's all right for the master, it's all right for me. So I knew exactly what he was saying. The master, of course, would be James Joyce and uh, impermeable. The only place it could be was in Finnegan's Wake. So, of course, when I got home, I started Finnegan's Wake again, hoping that it would be near the beginning. (laughs) Anyway, I found it in the fable of the mooks and the gripes on page 45 in the Faber edition. And, of course, the word impermeable was used in exactly the way that Beckett had used. Uh, So I immediately wrote him a letter apologising for being stupid. Uh, But I didn't tell him that Joyce had used it in the sense that impermeable is applied to waterproofs. Somebody is putting on their waterproof gear because you're going walking in the rain. I kept that back. The upshot of this was to establish an epistolary relationship with Sam Beckett, uh, which was wonderful. I think I've had seven or eight, maybe ten letters from them all together, and they're all handwritten. And they're all, at a certain level, illegible, unless you work at them for hours and hours and hours. That allowed me the fact that we were writing to each other, once or twice a year, um, allowed me to. And I knew that he, he didn't like to talk about his work, but if there was a little feature in his work that you wanted to quiz him about, he would be most helpful in replying. So there's a poem published in the 30s, The poem features a character who is cycling around the area of Yellow Walls, Malahide, Portran in North County Dublin in the, as I say, in the Yellow Walls estuary. And he's bicycling and he is pounding along in three ratios. And then after the word ratios, the poem begins a new line with the word Sturmer which I wrote to Beckett and I asked him directly, did the word Sturmer in any way remember or register a memory of Sturmy Archer gears, which were a fairly normal provision on good quality bicycles, particularly on rally bicycles in the 20s and 30s and even later. And Beckett wrote back to say that Sturmer was low German for warrior rampager. He had no recollection of Sturmy Archer gears, but he did remember 
the handlebar gear shift on his mother's old green machine. Which is a very, very precious reply to get because it allowed me to announce to the world <laughs> that Malloy's bicycle was in fact based upon Beckett's mother's bicycle because it was green like most of your generation. <laughs> Dear bicycle, I shall not call you bike. You are green like so many of your generation. I don't know why. It is a pleasure to meet it again. This happens in June 1986. I was working in Limerick at the time. Our normal procedure in the summer was to drive across Ireland, get a boat across to Fishguard, drive across England. If the timing was good, get across the channel and stay in a motel on the way to Paris because the normal procedure for me going on these holidays was to go en famille, the car packed, to go to the south of France, but to stop off for a couple of hours in Paris and have a, a meeting with Mr Beckett. We left on a Thursday. On that day, in June of 86, uh, there was a referendum in Ireland on removing the constitutional ban on divorce. As it turned out, my brother was the Minister for Justice at the time, so it was his initiative, so to speak, that brought about the referendum. The count began on Friday morning, and we set off from Clancy Strand in Limerick on the Friday morning in a car. Stay that night, in fact, we made it across to Calais and say outside Calais, and then I always met Beckett in the PLM Hotel in the Petit Café uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, he was always punctual, so there was no question ever of being late. I arrived, and I was there, and he arrived. And um, at some point, there was a pause in the conversation, and I asked him, because in the car on the way across England, FM disappeared off the radio but it still had AM. But by the time we got to Slough, somewhere like that, there was no reception anymore. And the BBC didn't carry any report on the referendum result, nor was there anything on the French stations that was able to tune into on the Saturday morning. So having voted on the Thursday morning and then left on the Friday, uh, now I'm, I'm in Paris. And I know that Beckett was in telephonic connection with, with people in Dublin he would have been aware of the news from Ireland. So I said, did you hear the result of the referendum? And he said, uh, oh, yes, it was lost. And then uh, I was a bit taken aback because as a liberal, I thought this is, this is a cakewalk. Again, Beckett was looking at me intently and he said, oh, you look very disappointed. I said, I am. He said, were you planning to get divorced? And I said, no, I wasn't planning to get divorced. I was very disappointed because my older brother was the Minister for Justice and I was disappointed on his behalf that he had failed to get the constitutional ban on divorce lifted. Of course, subsequently in the early 21st century, it was lifted and, and Ireland became the 50s ended, as they say, sometime in the, in the early noughties of the 21st century. So Beckett, he put his glasses up on his forehead and he turned those amazing blue eyes on me 
and he asked me a question. And the question was, are they all still asleep over there? I was taken aback. I didn't know what to say. But uh, a thought occurred to me. I said, Mr. Beckett, did the adoption, the enactment of the Constitution in 1937, did it in any way contribute to your decision to leave Ireland? And he said, of course, it did. Yes, affirmative. I remember on one occasion, must have been about 88, at this time I couldn't get a place to park close to the PLM. Uh, so I had to park up the street a bit and dash down to make sure I got to the hotel by 11 o'clock. When I got to the hotel, it was kind of extraordinary because the, the Petit Café, which was just off the foyer of the hotel, was absolutely crowded with, it looked like, hundreds of Japanese tourists. And every one of them seemed to have a, a camera with a telephoto lens and a, a big bag of photographic equipment. And the place was a hubbub. There was absolutely no way that I could have had an encounter, a quiet morning coffee with Mr. Beckett, the Nobel Prize winner, in that cafe. So I went out to the lobby, because I was about five minutes early, and he came through a door that uh, he, he never came through the front door. He always came in some trade entrance. He obviously had access to it. And he came towards me and he saw me, but he lost his footing. There was two shallow steps in the foyer and he obviously forgot that they were there and he was coming towards me to greet me. And I realized he was, you know, he wasn't going to see the steps. So I rushed up to him and he fell and I caught him. Now, I'm not particularly bulky myself, if I may say so. He was as light as air. He really was like a feather. The last time I met him was again in Paris, but this time not in the PLM. It was in the, in the nursing home where he stayed for some months before he died. He died in hospital. It was kind of a cheerless place. But Hugh, Hugh Kenner was a Canadian academic and he had written a very, very fine book about Beckett in the mid-60s. Joyce and Beckett... And the title of the book was The Stoic Comedians. A very, very good book. I met him in the PLM. He was staying in the PLM. Prior to my going to Paris, uh, I had reviewed Becker's recent publication, Stirring Still. We got a taxi around to the, the nursing home, which was about 150 yards away. I had made the arrangements through a doctor in Dublin and an intermediary in Paris. And so... He wanted to meet Hugh Kenner again because he was pleased with the book that had been written and so on and so on. We trooped into his room 
Uh, there were only two chairs, one for you, one for me. Beckett sat on his bed. Beckett, who had given up smoking, was smoking again. And I was still smoking at the time. And Hugh Kenner was a, a chimney. So there was a lot of smoking, a lot of talk. I had made sure I'd bought a bottle of whiskey. I knew Beckett liked his whiskey Irish. So that was opened and it was consumed in the while we were there, smoking. And at some point, Hugh started to turn to Beckett and he said, Sam, did you read Jerry's review of your latest in the Irish Times? Sam looked around at me rather quizzically. And he said, no, what did he say? And Kenner said to him, he didn't say much. Stirring still. We all know what it's about. It's about dying. But he did count all the words and noticed that in the first half, the sentences on average have so many words and in the second half, and that the word count comes out as a kind of fatidic date in your life, the year of your birth. Beckett turns around to me and he says, oh, is that what you did? I said, yeah, there's always depths to your writings, Mr. Beckett, or Sam. You need to have your wits about you. So he, he got up off the bed and walked over to a wardrobe and he put his hand in and he took out a small object, which was obviously a book. And he came around and he handed it to me and I saw it was called Subreso. And it's the translation into French of stirring still. And he just handed it to me and I said, oh, oh thank you, Sam. And he said, will you study that? And I said, of course I will. But I can tell you, before we go any further, that there will be fewer words and the patterns will be different. Am I right, Sam? And he said, yes. But before we left, Beckett started to recite a passage from a poem by W.B. Yeats. Hugh Kenner chimed in with him and the pair of them recited a paragraph from Yeats's poem The Tower and the pair of them went through this and then at the end we shook hands and left never saw him again. This time... I know where I am going. It is no longer the ancient night, the recent night. Now it is a game I am going to play. He can be scabrously vulgar and he can be lyrically enchanting, sometimes within the frame of of a single paragraph. His novels, his writings, his plays, they generate echoes and they offer you avenues of exploration which very few writers would open up for you. And they connect, they connect finally with being human. Jerry Dukes there, remembering encounters with our featured writer this month, Samuel Beckett. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound and the producer was Kevin Brew. To listen back to this and Jerry's other commentaries, The Beckett Season and hundreds of Drama on One podcasts, have a look at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Along the way, you heard excerpts read by Barry McGovern from the CD box set Samuel Beckett Three Novels. 
produced by RTE and the Lannan Foundation in 2006, with Tim Lahan as producer. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. RTE.ie forward slash drama on one.